0: Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning with our knees bowed before you as not just our savior, but also our king. You, Jesus, were the only one that could save us from the sin that ensnares us. We thank you, Jesus, for being submitted to your Father and taking on the price of sin that was never meant for you, but was meant for us. Holy Spirit, we thank you for doing the work of conversion in our hearts. While we still live within the bounds of these fleshly tents, our spirits have hope and have been shown the light of truth of the gospel through you giving us life. Father God, we ask for wisdom this morning. As 2024 is getting underway and we acknowledge that this is an election year, the world is going to try and entice us with a false wisdom and a false religion that a politician can provide us with some type of hope. In any way that any of us have fallen prey to this false truth, we ask for your forgiveness. May you help us keep our eyes focused on you this year and proclaim clearly to the world around us that you are the only hope, that you are the only one with truth. Help us, Father, to stay true to the calling that you have given us to go forth and make disciples in the name of the only true King, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for the time that the women of this church have spent together in the book of Ruth. We thank you for their desire to dig deep and to have an understanding of your word As they look to start up Titus, may you continue to grow their hunger and thirst for your word and desire to know you at a deeper level each and every day. Similarly, I pray for the men of this church. As we are about to begin the men's Bible study and embark our journey through Titus, I pray for the hearts of all the men that we would all have humility to submit to your word and grow in our understanding of you. May we take this seriously as we look how to equip each other with the right interpretation of your holy word. We thank you, Lord, for your global church and the continued work that you are doing and continuing to make disciples in your own name. We thank you for the local churches that we get to partner with in the work of spreading your gospel. Specifically, we thank you for Henson Baptists and their long history you have established in this church to have a seriousness in its members committing their lives to you. I pray specifically for the upcoming conference on membership that you would use this conference held at Hinson to help people have a better understanding of the importance of being committed members to a local body. I also lift up the branch down in Corvallis. May you empower our sister church to have the boldness to go and spread the truth of your gospel to all the surrounding areas. I thank you so much for this church family that you have built here, Lord. We come from all walks of life and have different interests, but, you, but we are unified through your gospel. Calm our hearts now as we dive deep into your amazing truth of your word. In your holy name we pray.
1: Amen. Amen. Thank you, Michael. Can I have a seat and open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 2? We're covering the last section of that chapter this morning. How many of you have ridden the Disneyland ride Space Mountain? How many of you love it? My family loves it. Whenever we've gone to Disneyland, my wife and kids spend a good deal of time figuring out how to go on that ride alone. Well, technically, my sons and my wife love it. Kara, she's figuring it out. Now, I love it too, or at least I did as a child. But there came a point where I was no longer able to love it as I once did. Let me tell you about that moment. That moment came in the early years of marriage before we had children when my wife and I went on a quick getaway to Disneyland by ourselves. I had not been on the ride since I was a child and so I assumed that I would fit. (laughs) So we moved our way through the Labyrinthian hallways to make it to the chamber where you get into the ride. And if you've not been there, it's somewhat stressful and a bit like a cattle call where they're just trying to get you on the ride as fast as possible and get you going. Now, as I attempted to sit down on the roller coaster in the car, I realized that my thigh bones were too long to fit between the back of my seat and the front of the seat in front of me. So, as I usually do, I tucked and rolled and tried to contort, uh, as I do on the other rides, as best I could, because there's no conversation with the attendants at that point. With everyone else seated, I was literally and metaphorically stuck. But it was then that I realized, as I was hovering a few inches off the seat, that my knees were embedded in two screws at the front of my seat. I'd already attempted to buckle up, but I was quickly feeling pain that told me I should change my mind. But just as I attempted to flag down the attendant to let me out, the ride started to move forward. For the next few minutes that seemed like a literal eternity, I now know what hell is like, I prayed very strongly that I would not fly out of that roller coaster nor be decapitated by the tracks at my head level as we went under them. You never know how close those tracks are until you're six foot ten and a few inches off the seat, let me tell you. <laughs> For most of it, I was a bit blacked out from the pain. And when we pulled back into the chamber to disembark, my wife asked if I was okay because I was covered in sweat and extremely pale. In a panic, I tried to quickly get myself out of the car, but the movement of the roller coaster had wedged me down, not fully into the seat, just further so that I could not get out on my own. Luckily, after yelling at me to get out a few times, the attendant of the ride realized I was stuck and came over to help me. And as I pushed down with all my might and the attendant and my wife pulled up with all their might, I eventually felt freedom with the sound of a large cork being freed from a bottle. (laughs) Let's just say it was not one of my more gracious moments in life. It did not leave me feeling petite. (laughs) You see, no matter how badly I wanted to fit, no matter how hard I tried to fit, I was a square peg in a round hole. It was just not going to be a good fit. There was a giant discrepancy between Space Mountain and my six foot 10 frame. It would not work. Well, now that you've all had a good laugh at my expense, this morning we're going to deal with a similar discrepancy, but one that has an even larger gap. The Apostle Paul in chapters one and two of his letter to the Corinthians has been trying to point out a similar discrepancy between those who live in Christ and those who live in the world. And he's been trying to point out that the two do not mix. You see, the church at Corinth was declaring with their mouths that they were followers of Christ, but everything they were doing, all of their activity, and the way they were treating one another seemed to line up far more with Corinth than with Christ. So Paul is trying to let them know that a Christian, who is guided by the way the world thinks, is going to eventually feel like a square peg in a round hole amongst the people of God. They're not going to fit in the people of Christ. And this has been the historical understanding of the church for most of its existence, really for 2,000 years. Up until the early 1900s, the history of the church, the church was a place for those professing conversion and a belief in Christ. The word church comes from the word Kirka, which is connected to the word the lords. In other words, people at the church were the lords, they were his possession. Church buildings were even built so that those who were not converted, they would stop in the, what we call the atrium and would not be allowed into the sanctuary to worship. Why? Because they had not been converted. In other words, the church was a place for those professing conversion and belief in Christ. Christians were to be sent from that assembly of the converted out into the world to declare the gospel. It wasn't supposed to be insular, but the church itself, the assembly, was for the assembly of the converted to then be sent out. And those who then accepted the gospel that was taken out into the world would be brought back into the church and would be baptized into membership in that local church. The church, therefore, was primarily for believers, not a place where an avowed unbeliever or even a quote-unquote seeker would be comfortable. We'll see this later in 1 Corinthians as Paul talks about a non-believer who would come in amongst the people of God and fall to their knees because they're so convicted. There was a known line of demarcation between the holy and the secular because of the wisdom the two distinct parties used to guide and direct their life. But the church at large has drifted from this idea in the last 75 years. It has decided that it would be a good idea to bring more of the world into the church to see if we can synthetically grow the numbers of the church, in essence, forcing the square pegs into the round hole. And so, any line of demarcation is now seen as off putting and insular and self righteous and mean. But this is why the church as a whole has lost its moral anchor in the gospel of Christ and begun to drift, no longer leaving an indelible mark on the world. So the question then arises is there actually a line of demarcation for those that are in Christ and those that are not? What does Scripture say? Is it truly anyone who says, I am a Christian, that is a convert? Or is there something deeper that has to occur for the church to declare that this person standing before us has been converted from the world? To Christ. From our text this morning, I believe Paul is indeed declaring that there is a line of demarcation between those that have been converted from the heart and those that have not. Those that are in the spirit of Christ and those who are in the flesh. Paul is presenting this truth because he's trying to get those within the local church of Corinth to understand that they cannot stand with a foot in both worlds. Paul is in essence saying, Corinthians, you will either believe and walk in the truth of Christ, or you will not, and you will walk in the ways of the world that surrounds you. But you can't do both. It's similar to what Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. From this line in the sand, Paul will then lay out through the rest of the letter, multiple scenarios that they have presented to him, and he will describe for them what it is to walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. His expectation being that those who are Christ's will indeed hear him, obey his commands, once the wisdom has been presented, and those who are still living by the motivation of the flesh, they will not, and they will reject it. In summary, Paul provides us this morning with a test for discerning whether one is led by the Spirit or the flesh. A test for discerning whether one is led by the Spirit or the flesh in the midst of his statements, we're gonna have to deal with a very difficult verse that has been misused and actually runs contrary to the very thing he's trying to point out. But then we'll also see practical application Paul will give us in our own walk and in our own evangelism to those outside the local church. So let's take a look this morning at Paul's comments in 1 Corinthians 2, 12 through 16. He says there in the middle of the paragraph, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God. For they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. In the first three verses, Paul lays out a contrast between the reception of spiritual wisdom by the spiritual person and the rejection of spiritual wisdom by the natural person. Let's look at each in turn. The first, the reception of spiritual wisdom by the spiritual person. This is in verses 12 through 13. Paul makes a definitive statement here that those who are the mature, he noted from verse 6 in our text last week, he says, they, we, have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. We say it again, we have received, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. Paul is laying out this line of demarcation by using the word we. In other words, those who are going to align with his teaching based upon the wisdom of the spirit are the we. And this is seen throughout the letter as he regularly exhorts them to follow his lead. He will say in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, there have to be divisions where there is a known understanding of who stands in which group. He sees this throughout the letter. Who's gonna follow his lead and who's not going to? Perhaps none so pointedly as what we will see in 1 Corinthians 14, 37 through 38. He says this, if anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. It's pretty blunt, right? The qualifier that Paul notes is that they have received something from God, the Spirit who emanates from God. Now notice in our text here in 1 Corinthians 2, notice two things with me here. First, they have received the Spirit. They have not ascended to a place of spiritual prowess. They have not attained such knowledge so as to achieve its presence. They have not experienced the divine in the way the pagans would suggest they need to. They have been given him, the Holy Spirit, by God the Father as a gift of grace. Secondly, the Spirit of God is not the spirit of the world. That spirit emanates from the prince of the power of the air, the prince of this world, the enemy of God, the agent of chaos and rebellion. Now, interestingly, in the Greek, it's the same word though, it's the word pneuma. We have one capitalized and one not. Paul uses this word, pneuma, for the spirit that is from God and the spirit of the world. But one is an agent of God, an ambassador, if you will, a person. And the other is a way of thinking prevalent in pagans. The New Testament lexicon of semantic domain, it's a fancy title for something that helps us understand how to differentiate between words used in different contexts that are the same word, It speaks of the spirit of the world as this, an attitude or disposition reflecting the way in which a person thinks about or deals with some matter. It is a way of thinking. So Paul says, we have not received the way of thinking that aligns with the world around us, a way of thinking that is based on power, hedonism, greed, success, purposeful injustice, position and I would even argue and I think Paul will later in 1 Corinthians 13 a worldly view of things like love. No, we have received the person of the Spirit who who is from God. He is a person who resides within God's people calling us to follow the law of God as laid out within his word. He is an interpreter, a teacher, a comforter, an exhorter, and a voice of conviction. He imparts God's wisdom to God's people. For what purpose? Notice what he says there. That we might understand the things freely given to us by God. Now, obviously, based upon what has led up to this point in the text, this is speaking of the core base truth of the gospel. We have understood the gospel that without the Spirit we could not understand nor give ourselves to. The Holy Spirit helps us to understand that Jesus is the Messiah and that we are rebels against the God that he serves, the God that he is. We are sinners in need of his sacrificial substitutionary death in our place. The Spirit helps us to understand that Jesus rose again and sits right now living as a king enthroned over the kingdom of which we are now a part. Without the Spirit, this is all foolishness and myth. It's nonsense. But the things freely given to us by God is also speaking of spiritual wisdom that helps us understand how to live as the people of Christ amidst a world that is contrary to his rule. This wisdom will be the basis for Paul's instruction throughout the rest of the letter, and it touches on all points of life. These things are freely given to us by God. Friends, this is the definition of grace, freely given. Nothing we have earned or qualified ourselves to receive by our actions. These truths of salvation and holy living are given to us by God's charitable, compassionate, and gracious nature because he is such a good God. Both the content and the capability to understand, they're gifts to us. In all of this, Paul is encapsulating the truth of the new covenant that had been manifested in Christ and given to the church by the Holy Spirit. Let's take a look for a second at an Old Testament passage that talks about the promise God had given to his true chosen people in the Old Testament. He said this in Ezekiel 36, 24 through 27, and as we read it, I want you to see how it lines up with what Paul is talking about here. He says to his chosen people, his elect people, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Notice the wording there. He will place his spirit in us. And that spirit is the means by which he will cause us to walk in his statutes. And be careful to obey his rules. In other words, the action is not ours. We cooperate with the action God is doing. Does that mean I can just kind of lay there in my bed and hope by osmosis I'll just have holy living and understand the things of God? No, not at all. We cooperate, but the work, the source of all of this sanctification is from God. Now, do you see how Paul is calling upon this promise of God as being fulfilled in the true Christians of Corinth? Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. For what reason? That we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Paul is saying, those of us who are truly new covenant believers in Christ, we have been given the spirit of God because God promised it. And the whole point was that we might understand God's rule in our lives. It's as if Paul is giving a test for discerning whether one is led by the spirit or the spirit is not present and we're led by the flesh. And this is very similar, isn't it, to Christ's teaching on the work of the Holy Spirit. This is from John 14, 16 through 17. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Once we have received this truth of the gospel and the truth of Christ's reign in our lives, we as Christians can't help but pass it on to those we evangelize and disciple Notice verse 13. He says, we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. We take what we have been given, and we take it to others to give it to them. This sounds like a, a lot like the Great Commission, doesn't it? Go, make disciples, disciples of Jesus, baptizing them in the authority of the triune God, and teaching them to obey, observe all that God has commanded. And what is it that he, the Spirit of God, does when we impart these words? The Spirit, present in that person's life, helps make clear spiritual truths to those who have received him, the Spirit. The wooden Greek here is, we explain spiritual things to spiritual people. And this language would have been a total slap in the face to the members of the church at Corinth that were proclaiming to be spiritual because of their activity. They were claiming to be more spiritual than Paul. They claimed that they were the pneumaticos, or the spiritual people. And Paul is pointing out that if they actually were spiritual, if they actually had the Holy Spirit within them, then they would be taught by the same spirit that is inspiring Paul's words of exhortation. But they are not. And so Paul points out the likelihood of why that is. And this is a direct hit upon those opponents. This next section, he details the rejection of spiritual wisdom by the natural person. The rejection of spiritual wisdom by the natural person. Let's reread verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Now, thus far in the letter, Paul, in a somewhat passive-aggressive manner, has been addressing the pneumaticos throughout. He's been addressing the spiritual people because that is what many in the Corinthian church claimed that they were or were aspiring to be. In other words, they had a higher understanding of the spirit than Paul, and so they could dismiss what he taught. They all wanted to be spiritual in the sense of being more spiritual than the other person standing to the left or right of them. And that is what they were showing by their spiritual actions put on display. We'll see this a great deal as we go on. But now Paul very clearly puts up a contrast for them to see. He contrasts the pneumaticos, the spiritual person, with the psychikos, the natural person. The spiritual and the natural. Now the Greek word suki is where we get the word psyche. It's intended to speak of the unspiritual or the natural side of the person. The person who does not have the spirit, Paul says, is not a recipient of the new covenant grace of God. They do not accept spiritual things such as the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God, such as the cross, such as being a servant, such as humbling yourself to be lifted up, such as laying down your life for your friend, such as giving your life over to the other members of the congregation, all of these seem like foolishness to the natural mind. And so if these pneumaticos do not understand this, Paul is pointing out the possibility that perhaps they fall into the category of the psuchikos, the natural people, and they're not actually spiritual at all. Now think about this, for a spiritual person, this was a pretty big slap in the face, was it not? Perhaps you're not spiritual at all, Paul says. The reason the wisdom of God seems foolish to them is that they are not able to understand it because the Spirit must be present in their life to help them discern. Even if there was a desire, which Paul is inferring that there is not, there would not be the ability to discern or understand because, as we looked at last week, their minds and hearts are voluntarily blinded to the truth. So again we have a similar idea to what we discussed last week. Why does the person standing in front of us that we're preaching to hear the gospel truth and yet completely dismiss it as foolishness? Why does that happen? Well, because they have not been given the Holy Spirit who can help them discern the truth of God's word. Why does the brother or sister who claims to be a Christian standing in front of you why are they hardening their heart and making foolish choices? persisting in their current course of action when brothers or sisters are coming to them and saying, hey, trust us, we love you, don't do this. Well, because at a bare minimum, they're fighting against the Spirit's leading, wanting to do their own thing, be their own Lord, or worse yet, they never actually had the Holy Spirit present in their lives in the first place. The effects of our rebellious nature have so clouded and blinded our minds and hearts that the natural man or the person driven by the flesh wants nothing to do with the things of God. And yet they convince them they do. They convince themselves that they do. And so God slowly but surely gives us over to that separation. He gives us over to Satan who blinds us even further. Listen to Paul's statement to the Corinthians in his second letter to them in 2 Corinthians 4, 3-4. He says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's pretty clear, right? So it bears repeating from last week, brothers and sisters. How often are we on our knees in desperate prayer For those whom we desire the Lord to save. Do we spend as much time doing that as we do reading books on apologetics to be able to debate with them over Thanksgiving? How often are we on our knees begging the Lord to give them the Spirit? How often do you as a parent pray for your children who have not fully professed faith? Lord, give them your Spirit. How often do you pray for the difficult people in your life that Christ might give them spiritual sight? How often do you pray for those who might already know Christ, including yourself, that they would soften their heart to the wisdom provided by the Spirit? Friends, we must pray that the Spirit works in conversion and in sanctification. Because without the work of the Spirit, there is an inability to be saved and an inability to be sanctified. So Paul has now laid out the two possibilities. One is either operating in the flesh as a natural person, or one is operating in the spirit as a spiritual person. And we might ask the question, Paul, is is this a spectrum between two poles? Aren't we a little bit of both at all times? Didn't you say this in Romans? Well, we will discuss this in great detail next week as we talk about the commonly used phrase carnal Christian, which I'm going to argue to you there is no such thing. But in short answer, as a preview, Paul would say no. As our second reading pointed out, there is the spirit of the world that is the spirit of the anti-Messiah, the anti-Christ. In other words, fighting against the rule and power of Christ. And there is the spirit of God that points to the rule of Christ and helps us submit to that rule even when it doesn't feel comfortable. There are those who are fleshly And will not be saved. The perishing, as Paul put it. There are those that are spiritual who will be saved. And then within those who are spiritual, there are those that are ignorant and still learning. But here's the deal, friends. Once we have been given the things of God, once truth has been pointed out to us, we can no longer claim to be ignorant. And so we must ask ourselves, Do I regularly accept and obey the wisdom of God or do I find that I am constantly fighting against it? One other possible question that might come up in light of this, though, is one that was presented to me this week and it's a wonderful question. Isn't Paul here replacing one spiritual hierarchy with another? For this sounds very Gnostic, on the surface. Some will receive, as Paul called it in verse 7, a secret and hidden wisdom of God. So how is Paul not actually forming a special club of his own truly spiritual people that is just different from the one that already exists in Corinth? And this is a great question because it does seem like that if we read it on its surface. But what typified Gnostic spiritualism and the spiritualism that was in Corinth was clearly something that was individual in nature. The Gnostic would have an individual spiritual experience that would be the foundation of their claim for spiritual expertise. No one around them would be able to challenge it, for it was their experience of the divine alone. In other words, they were their own spiritual authority. You know these people, they are all over the church at large. They're the people that come up to you and say, I have a word for you, and you say, yes, I have the word of God, what's your word? And they say something to you, and it has nothing really to do with the Bible. Your skirt's too short, they might say. That's one I've heard before. Or when Kelly and I were uh, having miscarriages, I have a word from the Lord, you must be in sin because you're having miscarriages. Well, what do you say to that person? No, you don't? Well, I talk to the Lord, I have a word from the Lord, so it's a spiritual trump card. It's a person who bases their claim for spiritual expertise not on the word of God, not on the spirit of God, but upon their own experience. It's subjective. What Paul is promoting, though, was not an individual revealing based on an experience of the divine, nor was he promoting a special club of the spiritual elite. He was, in fact, doing the exact opposite. He was presenting a corporate, collective revealing based upon a promised action of the divine as a result of the gospel. And this is of utmost importance because you will notice that we're still in the section overall where Paul is dealing with the topic of division in the church. He is trying to get the church to unify in their common salvation and the common biblical wisdom of the Old Testament truth. But they are each playing the spiritual trump card that allows them to have authority over one another. This is not a mutual submission under the authority of Christ. This is in contrast to it. This is the person that says, well, I read my Bible and I think this, so I must be right. And this is what Paul will revisit again in chapter 3 and bring to bear more and more as he answers their questions and situations within the wisdom of the Spirit. He's always going to point back to the Word of God. He's always going to point back to the Word of God that was inspired by the same Spirit that dwells within God's true spiritual people. You see, friend, you cannot call yourself spiritual if you're doing something contrary to what the Word of God that was inspired by the Spirit says. If you are, then the Spirit you have needs to be tested, and you'll find out that it is the Spirit of the anti-Messiah, not the Spirit who emanates from God. Paul's point is that all that have been truly saved have the Spirit and are therefore spiritual, discerning the truths of God's wisdom. And it is this fact that should unify, not divide the church. But it is also this truth of a collective knowledge and wisdom that makes the next verses a little bit, ironically, very out of place and hard to understand. But before I get to that, let me give you one point of application for us in this church at this time. Some of you ladies will go over and you'll do your introduction to the method we use for Bible study. And one of the things you'll talk about is what's called the perspicuity of Scripture. It's a fancy word that means the ease of understanding Scripture. You see, friend, if you have the Holy Spirit, here's the awesome thing. It is simply a matter of time before you understand the Word of God. If you're a person who sits here in, our, in here on Sunday and thinks, how does he come up with this stuff? I can't see this. Man, I, I, I read the word and it just doesn't make sense to me. I Listen, it doesn't make sense to me. Well, friends, just keep going. Keep enduring because if you have the spirit of God, he will illuminate scripture to you, not to raise you up, but actually to humble you amidst the people of God so that we are all unified in obedience to the same gospel truths and the same obedience of the faith. If you're a person that thinks, I'm not smart enough, I'm not spiritual enough, don't listen to the lies of the enemy, just keep going, keep studying, keep listening, and you will be amazed at how much scripture makes sense to you. Hopefully that's an encouragement to you this morning. Well, Paul then moves on into verses that, given what we've just said, seem, as I said, ironically, a little bit out of place and hard to understand. Paul will next make the point in these last two verses that in order to discern rightly, we must discern by the mind of Christ and nothing else. We must discern by the mind of Christ. Let's reread verses 15 through 16. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ." Now, Paul has laid out plainly that there are spiritual people who understand the wisdom of God, and there are unspiritual people, natural people, who do not. And now he throws out a verse that is a bit confusing and, if used incorrectly, could lead to destructive abuse, actually backing the idea that some people are more spiritual and should not be under anyone's authority. The key to understanding verse 15 is to realize that we must read it in its grammatical and literary context. If you've been part of our Bible studies, you know those phrases. Our grammatical and literary context. First, the literary context. The Greek word, uh, or excuse me, first the grammatical context. The Greek word rendered discern in verse 14. These things are spiritually discerned. Is the same Greek word that is rendered twice the word judge in verse 15. In other words, if you looked at the Greek, you'd see the exact same word in all three spaces. The fleshly or natural mind cannot discern or understand or evaluate the wisdom of God, especially the cross. But the spiritual person can discern all things because he or she has the Holy Spirit that searches the heart of God and we are freely given then the wisdom of God. We just have to submit to it and continue to search it out. But then the difficulty of the next line pops up. But is himself to be judged by no one? But again, the word here, to make it a little bit clearer, you can change it to discern. Paul is making a word play in the Greek. But but does this mean that the truly spiritual person is under no accountability or authority? No one can judge them. Is this what Paul is saying? Well, this is where literary context assists us greatly. Twice in the next couple of chapters, Paul will make statements that help us understand what he is not saying here, and he's not saying that this person is to not be under any form of accountability. Let me give those to you quickly. The first is in 1 Corinthians 5, 12 through 13. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. So purge the evil person from among you. This is in the context of a church discipline situation. Paul is clear that the church is to judge matters of sin within themselves. So obviously, thinking back to 2.15, our text for today, Paul is not saying that truly spiritual people get out of this, that they're to be under no authority. No, the church at Corinth had congregational authority based upon membership, which I will show you when we get there. A second place is in 1 Corinthians 6, 2 through 3. Here, Paul is commenting on a lawsuit between two members of the Corinthian church, and he points out that they will, in fact, participate in judging the world and the angels. So shouldn't they be able to judge between themselves? Look at 1 Corinthians 6, 2 through 3. Or do you not know that the saints, that's the people of God, will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incapable or incompetent, uh, excuse me, incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? And so Paul is obviously saying that judgment is to happen within the church. There is to be accountability to one another. So obviously Paul is not saying that the spiritual people within the church are not to be judged. So if that's not what Paul is saying, what is Paul saying? Do you ever feel that way when you read Paul? Paul, what are you saying? Paul is simply continuing his comparison between the person who has received the Spirit of God and those that have not. The spiritual person, in other words, all those that are truly converted by the Spirit of God, they have the ability to discern all things, even the mind of God regarding the mystery hidden since before the ages and now revealed to the church. True spiritual people with the Spirit of God dwelling in them have the ability to discern the cross and the salvation and obedient living that flows from it. But then in return, when it comes to those without the Spirit, they cannot discern anything. They can't judge anything, they can't evaluate anything about Christendom or the Christian. For they will think it all foolishness and folly. And this is the no one that Paul is referring to. No one, in other words, in the world, can judge the spiritual person. And he's making an attack on his opponents here, saying, you guys are sitting in judgment of me, an apostle? who's been with Christ, knows Christ, and you're telling me that I'm wrong, he's saying? And we'll see this as he goes on. Well, his next statements will help us validate this understanding even further. Paul next quotes from Isaiah 40, 13. He says there, For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? We read it earlier in our first reading. Let's look there now and read it again in context of the verse before and after, Isaiah 40, 12 through 14. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? The answer is no one. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? The answer, no one. Whom did he consult and who made him understand? No one. Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? The answer to Isaiah's questions would be, no one. So look right before that. Is himself to be judged by no one? The very phrase Paul uses in the preceding verse here is that no one can compare themselves to the Almighty. No one can say they know him or have given him counsel. No one can discern or evaluate the things of God. And so no one stuck in the natural, in the fleshly, is able to understand the Christian or understand the cross. But going back to 1 Corinthians 2.16, Paul adds in a but after the quote. But, he says, we have the mind of Christ. In other words, he's saying this, no one, doesn't apply to us. And all of this is meant to push back on the people and the individualistic hyper-spiritual party there in Corinth that are fighting against Paul's apostolic authority. Paul is pointing out that those Arrogant in the ways of the world, those who feel justified in judging the things of God and the people of God by worldly standards, don't truly understand the way of the cross. So friends, is it any wonder that the world looks at the church and what we believe and says, oh, you're ignorant, you're hateful, you're horrible people? No, it's no wonder whatsoever. Christ said, they hate me, so therefore they will hate you. And any effort we have to try and get in the good graces of the world and show that we're actually kind, nice people, well, what is that actually doing? It's forsaking the wisdom of God and becoming part of the world. But those who are in Christ, those who have received the Spirit from the hand of God, we're not only able to discern all things because we've been given the very Word of God, But we have the mind of Christ to apply God's very wisdom to the situations we find ourselves experiencing inside and outside the church, especially inside the church. And so Paul will give a master class throughout the rest of the letter pointing to this truth. He will apply the wisdom of the cross of Christ to things like sexual immorality, lawsuits, how to be hospitable to one another, eating meals together, what to do in situations where you disagree, Communion, the home, marriage, singleness, and so much more. This book is a book of practical application of the cross. His point in the preceding verses is that if the Spirit is among even his detractors, then they will hear and understand. He's calling them to unify with him in the truth. And if they don't, then most likely the Spirit is not among them. And they will find it foolish to follow the things of Christ or of Paul or of the church that he is building. In essence, Paul provides a test for discerning whether one is led by the Spirit or the flesh. When it comes to how we view sin, how we live life, how we speak, and how we deal with relationships, we have to pause and we have to investigate. Friend, if we find ourselves aligning with the wisdom of the world and not the wisdom of Christ as shown at the cross and laid out in his word, then we must admit we are probably led by the flesh and not the spirit, and we must fall on our knees in confession and repentance and beg God that his Holy Spirit would convict our hearts and change us so that we might lean into the truth of God's word. So what do we do with this now? We understand what Paul is saying, but what do we do? Well, to put it simply, we apply the same test. We search out the things of God as delivered in his word and we submit ourselves to them as we find them. This is the whole point of being a church that searches the scripture and tries to understand it in context so that we can apply the principal nature to our lives as New Testament Christians. And if we don't do this, we must recognize that we are declaring that we do not agree with or understand the things of God. We have declared them to be folly. Brothers and sisters, are we seeking to sit under the word of God in faithful obedience? or Are we trying to bring the wisdom of the world around us to mold the things of God into that which might make sense to the world? I see this all the time, especially in younger generations, oh, the Bible doesn't really say what you think it says, let me hurry up and explain because it's really a lot better than what you're reading. No, the reality is, is it's horrible to the world. They hate it. It's foolishness. And trying to do that, well, you're just simply stepping back into the world and aligning with the world. So here are some questions for you this morning. Do you seek out the wisdom that is from God in his word? Do you prioritize the study of his word to have the mind of Christ? And when you encounter that which doesn't make sense to your worldly affections, do you submit those affections to his truth or do you cast aside biblical truth or mold it so that it makes sense to the world so that you can fit in the world? When you encounter truth presented from the pulpit that doesn't make sense to your worldly affections, do you try to dismiss it? shove it aside, or forget about it? Or do you search out the things that have been said to see if they are actually in the word? And when they are not, do you proactively get together with whoever is preaching, or maybe other congregants, to see if what was preached is actually there in the word? And if it is, do you conform to your thinking to that truth? And if it is not, do you bring it to the attention of the one preaching so that it can be adjusted for the good of the church? Do you take seriously your role in the ministry of the word at Mission Fellowship? Or do you come as a connoisseur, kicking aside what you don't like and taking in what already agrees with you, going about your way, not changed at all? Let me give you the most practical example I've seen in the church in the last few years. When you need to apply the wisdom of the gospel, so many self-professed Christians apply not the gospel of the word, but the gospel of nice. The worldly gospel of nice. Or, do we want to focus on the truth of Christ's death that atoned for our rebellious sin and the fact that he now reigns as our king? Friend, is your Christianity based on things that make you feel nice? Like the world would suggest is good Christianity. Or is your Christianity based on being obedient to your king, as the true gospel would suggest? This is often the conflict that arises in the midst of the church. When you deal with relational difficulties within the church, do you deal with them in the way that scripture declares? Going to your brother or sister and laying down your life for their good and Christ's glory? Or do you deal with relational difficulties the way the world does, slowly distancing, being distant, building a case, and then one day ghosting the person or people you are struggling with. Which do you do? One is the wisdom of the world, and one is the wisdom from the Spirit of Christ. These are examples. These are, there are many more. And these are questions that will help you discern whether or not you are serving the Spirit of God or the flesh. And if you're here this morning and you recognize that you are living contrary to the things of God, but you do desire to know him and walk in his ways, I think that's why you're here this morning, right? Then that means the Spirit is at work in your life. And he has called you to be a follower of Christ and serve him. And if that's you, if you notice that you're leaning into the world, but you want to lean into Christ, friends, we as your pastors would love to talk with you about what that looks like. We would love to support you and sit with you and walk through the wisdom of the Word with you and help you to lean into the truth of the wisdom of the Spirit. And so, if that's you, we'd love to talk with you after the service. Please, come talk to us. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, what this text tells us is that you have the mind of Christ. You simply must continue to grow in understanding His way of thinking. So much of the Christian walk, isn't it, is endurance. It's simply moving forward one step at a time, trusting that the Lord will protect you and keep you and bring you into his loving arms of glory. And so you and I, we must grow in what it is to live the cruciform life, not expecting perfection immediately or even in this life. And so here is the test of whether or not we have the spirit dwelling within us. Do we have a thirst for the things of Christ? Do we want to understand these things freely given to us? Do we desire to know and understand his mind and the manner of life to which he's called us? Do we search it out and thirst to know more? Friend, if you do, then the Holy Spirit dwells within you and has changed your affections towards Christ, even if it feels like you are engaged in a daily moment-by-moment battle against your flesh you can trust that you are the Lord's and he has saved you and will keep you until the end, you must simply partner with him in that pursuit. If you feel as though you don't understand and you struggle with confidence that you ever will, come talk to any one of us who are older in this congregation and we will tell you to simply have faith. Friends, I have been studying the word of God for 20 plus years. And I still read sections like the text from today. And I don't know what I was talking about. And then I sit down with people smarter than me, like our youth director, and I say, Kelton, help me. And he goes, I don't get it either. And then we pray over it and read it and study it and study other people that have studied it, and we read and pray, and and then the Lord shows us what it is because it's there in his word, and it's actually very easy to understand once you see it. And then I see it more clearly than I've ever seen it before. Do you know how many times I've read over these verses? Probably by this point, and this is not a humble brag, at least dozens, if not hundreds of times. And so if you're a person who says, man, I'm struggling, I'm trying, but man, I just wish the Lord would reveal it to me faster. Trust him, trust his pace. Trust that we are all still plumbing the depths of the mind of Christ, but we have the mind of Christ, and he will reveal it to us. And in so doing, I am, we are being sanctified and changed into his image. Don't give up on it. But friend, if you don't have that affection this morning, then I would beg of you to cry out to God. Stop pretending that you're a Christian. It is the most loving thing in the world for someone to point out to you that you are decidedly not. Cry out to God and ask him for his spirit so that your affections might change towards him. For no Christian has more or less of the Holy Spirit. Those who are his will have been given the Spirit to even understand the basis of the cross. We have all been given access to the gospel, and therefore we have all been given access to the deep things of Christ. This is why we study together. Is not because one person or another person understands it all. We study the word together because the Holy Spirit dwells within us and pushes us forward in a way that we understand the mind of Christ. As we pursue him, Mission Fellowship, and his mind for his people, we will find ourselves more unified than ever because it is the word of God, the truth of God, the wisdom of God given by the Holy Spirit that will unify us and cast aside every piece of us that wants to be selfish and individualistic. And so my prayer as your pastor, our prayer as your elders and pastors, and our prayer together should be that the Lord please give us all a desire to know the mind of Christ more and more. Amen? Amen. Amen.